Calling Down the Mountain, in memory of Tim Pantaleone, 1962-1995. The mountain says nothing. It stands with its green heads wreathed in clouds. The ridge where his bike was found lunges upward to the King Kong Wall, as we have dubbed it, the Koalau Range. Steam rolls up from the crevasses of the top, like hair, keeping the peaks veiled until noon, or sometimes all day. The mountain walls are green and deeply cut like downward-grasping fingers. Pele pushed the mountain up. The violence is in the form. The mountain stands. We who loved him stand at its foot, looking up. We have flown 5,000 miles to search for him. We shade our eyes. We pray. The mountain says nothing. The mountain is inviolable. We try to imagine which way he went. He might have gone straight up the sharp ridge, which climbs fast and narrows to a fin eight inches wide that brings us to our hands and knees over a 200-foot drop. We who once encircled him twine ourselves along the steep slope, wedging ourselves behind trunks to gain another foothold, fighting through vines that strap us at waist and ankle. Trees close to the wall of the mountain catch boulders the size of curled bodies. Vining ferns cover the lower slopes. A body dropped into them would be enveloped by five feet of springy growth. Even the smell of human rot would not escape them. Orchids spread their fragrance through the jungle. Rose apples fall wantonly to the ground. The mountain makes of us children, scaling its bony back. The mountain is not an it, as in an object, but neither is it male nor female. It is larger than us. It is beyond us. One minute he was fixing his landlady's door. The next minute, he was gone. He took nothing with him. He had come to the island only six weeks before in a final attempt to begin a new life. He had canoe practice that evening at 5.30. He was one of the only whites ever allowed to join the Native Hawaiian team. After three days of absence, his landlady called his mother in New York. His sister flew out. By the time she found his bike at the foot of the trail, six days had passed. After a two-day search with helicopters and dogs, the police called it off. No person who had gone missing for more than 48 hours had ever been found on Oahu. We could never predict and now cannot retrodict the ways of his mind. The possibilities of his mind are playful, quirky, rigid, inventive, the possibilities of the mountain are greater. When we put his mind, his monkey-tense arms and short quads, his furrowed brow together with the mountain's jungle streams, rock walls, and guava groves, the possibilities multiply exponentially. There are so many ways to die on the Koalau range, and more tantalizing, so many ways to keep on living if you are wounded between gentle daily rains soothing temperatures, abundant rose apples. As we comb the jungle, we eye broad tea plant leaves for what they might conceal. Impressions in the mud 
take the form of the dead body we wish not to find. He could be lying in a pool of water just out of reach. Waterfalls spill between the knuckles of the mountain forming pools, one fifty feet off the ground and then again at a hundred. Perhaps he scaled a fall too high for us. We push hard against the outthrust hands of the mountain that seem to say, Halt, lest you be prepared to follow him all the way. The rock walls are sheathed in slippery algae. When we teeter on the rocky lips we have conquered out of sheer desperation, we feel suddenly how our heads would burst like gourds on the rocks below. The pool before us is empty. We cannot follow him over the next wall to the pool just beyond. Gravity on the mountain is reversed. Rather than pulling us down, it pulls us up, raking us over its boulders and fallen trees into its heart, with the promise that he is just beyond reach. As hard as we struggle physically to go up, we struggle harder emotionally to go back down. Each night, we limp to bed, muddy, bruised, and empty-handed. When we are not scouring the mountain, we scour his letters and our memories. Was it an accident? Or had he been walking toward this conclusion his whole life long? In his second-to-last letter, he wrote, Have had several half-experiences on this trip, wonderful hikes, and appreciation of natural beauties, and some good exchanges with people that do not feel complete somehow. Then I'll tell the story about it, and the telling seems to fill the cup to the brim after the fact. I feel a bit as though I'm lying to my listener, portraying the experience as one that held my interest, whereas the main feature of most of these experiences is their emptiness, the spirit-confounding flatness of beauties and complexities that seem as though they ought to be sufficient, but are not. They do not nourish me. I am half-starved in the wilderness. He was 33, the age Christ was when he was crucified. Was it just coincidence or an unconscious resonance that he wrote in his last letter? When I read the Bible, Jesus seems to be saying, close the book, man, stop reading, and start living. And the telling of his story, the unceasing recording and re-recording of his actions, seem an astonishing lack of faith on the part of his would-be followers a spiritual opacity that would enrage their idol could he witness it, a man completely awake attempting to wake others. They manage to get their eyelids open, but cannot get out of bed. In my own case, I feel fooled into believing that somehow, if you study math and science hard enough, with enough magic, then you will have adventures, as if A can lead to B. I think this is false and wonder if those stories are told precisely because it never really happens. More to the point, I suppose, is that if you study A very hard, life starts to look very much like A itself. You start to see things in terms of the language you know well, thereby closing out all of the experience that lies outside your known realm, which of course is most experience. When white light, such as sunlight, enters a glass prism, out of the other side comes not white light, but all colors from deep red to orange, yellow, blue, green, and violet. Such was the light of his smile. 
kinds of light leapt in his flat-lidded eyes that only seconds before stared as detached as a lizard. His lips were full, his neck taut, his voice low and resonant as a cello. He formed his words deliberately and spoke with the cadence of a bass drum. His skin was smooth and hairless, and every muscle of his body was cleanly shaped by the hours he spent trying to live each moment of his life fully by running, climbing, and swinging on monkey bars to the delight of the children who gathered to watch him in the park at dusk. But his thoughts formed a strangling pattern that kept him fixed and lifeless, no matter how much he swung from the rafters or danced the samba or laughed, and he did all those things more than most people in a lifetime. Standing on that tangled red trail halfway up the mountain, overlooking two bays on an island far out in the dark blue Pacific, we are enacting the metaphor for his life. He is both alive and dead, all around us and nowhere. We are trying to rescue him from his path, and we cannot. Perhaps we should not. Because we don't know the whole story. We never will. In our minds, he dies a thousand deaths. He falls and breaks his legs and crawls under a rock ledge before he faints. He hits his head and is delirious, lying face to sky, hearing footsteps pass him by, but cannot wake up enough to call out. Perhaps he is not quite dead when the wild pigs, invisible to us but for their cloven tracks and low dens, approach him. Or, emerging from the jungle into a cannabis field, he sees the gun in a stranger's hand, and his entire life force swells behind his sternum to shield off the bullet that, in a flash, pops his skin and reveals him to be just the bag of blood we all carry on our bones. Or this. He is climbing the King Kong Wall without ropes, and when he reaches the top, he turns around, faces the sea, and for the first time in his life, stops thinking, raises his head, and simply lets go. However it occurred, perhaps the moment when he fell was the shortest distance between himself and life, which he had searched for all his life. Time is slow. If he is still alive, his life is leaving him. We who listen to him all our lives wrap rocks in tea plant leaves as offerings to the mountain. But six days turn into twelve, and twelve to twenty-four. We cannot find him. He has disappeared from the earth, leaving no trace. Or disappeared into the earth. His parts may be dispersed into the sun, the air, the bellies of pigs, the shining leaves of trees. The mountain may have swallowed him. The mountain may hold him tight to its breast. We stand at the foot of the Ko'olau range, shading our eyes, looking up. The mountain holds secrets high in its peaks, in hidden valleys that no one can reach except a strange, eccentric, strong man, driven by the desire to fully live for one minute, to be released from the self-entrapping circles of his mind. Prayer circles are said to be hidden here, that only natives know, 
with animals painted in red and black upon the walls. Dancing warriors are said to emerge at night. They are tall as the mountain. They stand straight as rain, raise knees and jagged forms, carry spears, move in slanted lines across the night, stamp bare feet upon the earth until the mouths of stones open wide. We, the living, sometimes smoke or sleep or drink to dull or enhance ourselves or break down and weep because we cannot live each moment fully as he thought we should, as he died trying to do. It is too much for our finite minds and hearts. I try to understand what has become of him and why. Did he try too hard to taste the atom of which we are made? Because definition never worked, seeking as it does to pin down life and fix it, I tell stories to try to make sense of it, stories to encompass it, stories to set it back in motion so that I may keep myself spinning with the spinning fact of our existence. Stories such as this. Voices are babbling and churning like water over stones. He awakes to find the river in his own voice, a new knowing blown over vocal cords into sound. The energy which holds atoms together is akin to human joy. Atoms stand before him bright as giant stars in a black sky, but close enough to touch. Though he cannot move, he leaps, and the atoms part, spinning past him to either side as he enters. We are bodies in motion. Organic patterns of energy stepping uniquely in a dance we know only partially in some minuscule way. We go back to the mainland, kneel in the bathtub and feel the warm water on our thighs, thinking he will never feel this again. We make food, cut and hang sheetrock, and must somehow accept the unfathomable that lies between these acts, within these acts, we must somehow incorporate a design as simple and mysterious as the roots that begin to grow from a section of dead tea plant left lying on a damp ground. For we are bodies in motion, in beauty, in terror, in motion. The mountain stands, and we stand, not understanding what stands between us. All this of which we are made, an absolute physical fact, with the unknown unfolding from it like the clouds rolling up from the peaks, like smoldering Pele bathed in red, petal-thin silk, ribbons of glass hair undulating above her. We pray that the mountain became a prism for his white light. But the mountain is what it is. We stand, the mountain stands, we shade our eyes, we pray.